It's Wednesday, November the 17th, and you're listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism. My guest today is Dr. Michael Boskin. Dr. Boskin is the Wolford Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Tully M. Friedman Professor of Economics at Stanford University. He served as Chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors for President George H.W. Bush, a.k.a. Bush 41. I can't think of anyone better to walk us through what's going on in the nation's capital these days regarding spending and the economic consequences thereof. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure, Bill. Always good to be with you. So a few days ago, you said this of uh, President Biden claiming that the Build Back Better plan, this is the human infrastructure plan, whatever you want to call it, BBB for short, he claims it, quote, it costs zero dollars. And you wrote the following, Michael, you said, quote, this is the most economically illiterate utterance is Jimmy Carter's demand that the Federal Reserve lower interest rates in the midst of the surging double-digit inflation. Those are harsh words, Dr. Boskin, but when the Congressional Budget Office releases its score on Friday, you expect to be vindicated. Well, yes, uh, there are two things going on here. One is the strange conflation of cost with whether the projects or the program are deficit or tax financed. Remember, if we're borrowing the money at the federal level, that means future interest payments have to be made on that debt, and there will be taxes to pay the interest payments. But that aside, this goes back to uh, the mercantilist argument that the wealth of a nation was uh, to be found in the gold and other precious metals in in the treasury of Louis XIV or the kings of England or whatever. And Adam Smith put that notion to rest in 1776, of course, in the wealth of nations, that the true source of a nation's wealth is its ability to produce goods and services that people want and need. Uh, that eventually became kind of the basis for our thinking in terms of gross domestic product, GDP, and things of that sort. Uh, he also fails to uh, mention that taxes carry a very high cost, a cost higher than the revenue that the government collects. Why? Because when the government taxes you an income tax or a sales tax uh, at, the state, at the state or local level or a payroll tax, it distorts the incentives that are at the heart of the economy. It creates what economists call waste or deadweight loss. Think of it as this inefficiency uh, because people are responding to after-tax incentives, after-tax wages, after-tax prices, and things of that sort. And therefore, the tax distorts what people buy, whether they spend or save, whether firms hire or not, uh, whether they invest because of the corporate tax, and so on. Now we need enough revenue to fund the necessary functions of government. So there's gonna be some cost of taxation. Mm -hmm. As every student learns in introductory economics in every college in the United States, this is not at all a doctrinal issue, that the cost rises, the the cost rises with the square of the tax rate. If you double the tax rate, you quadruple this harm. Uh, And the incremental cost goes up with a marginal tax rate. And that uh, means that the higher the tax rates, And Mr. Biden certainly wants to raise a bunch of tax rates. He says primarily on the wealthy, some of that's going to wind up being paid by people under his $400,000 threshold. But it will wind up having a cost that economists would estimate at around a buck 30 for every dollar the government raises. There's administrative and compliance costs, but mostly it's the cost of the distortions, the tax system causing people to shift their spending habits, their saving habits, businesses, their investments and hiring practices, et cetera. Uh, so if this wind up is, is $1.85 billion, as, as he claims, 
uh, build back better social infrastructure and in quotes mm -hmm. plan uh, is passed, it'll have, and most people believe it'll cost roughly twice that, including the Congressional Budget Office. They, they won't score it that way, but because there's so many gimmicks in here that are set up to get a good score from the CBO, like things phasing out after a few years, uh, programs starting well into the 10-year window. Right. Uh, that probably be about $4 trillion. And then you have to multiply that by 1.3. So we're talking about over $5 trillion of cost in the resources taken out of the private economy to fund the programs uh, that Mr. Biden wants to set up. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this, Michael, because there are a lot of sort of clever little time bombs inside of this bill. For example, there's an increased child tax credit and expanded earned income tax credit that would last for just a year. Uh, there's expanded Affordable Care Act premium tax credits that would last for four years, universal pre-K, which would last for six years. And what do these have in common, Michael? These would all be very difficult things for politicians to vote against when they expire. Yeah, I think there's some, almost everybody in elective office knows that it's harder to remove something once people have gotten it than to never give it to them in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, and also to delay the taxes uh, is easier by if you borrow now, someone else will be responsible for raising taxes in the future. So the default option in recent years has been uh, to debt finance what we're trying to spend. And there have been some whoppers. Uh, uh, there's been a lot of spending since the 2008-9 financial crisis. There's a lot of spending uh, in the first three years of the Trump administration. And then, of course, spending ballooned. Uh, much of it, I would say, a good thing to do, given the great uncertainty from the recession from the COVID crisis, and undoubtedly helped people and small businesses weather the storm some. Uh, but uh, that's beh mostly behind us now. The unemployment rate's down to just a little over 4%. And uh, we have a continued surging inflation. There's an argument about whether that's transitory or not. Perhaps we'll cover that later. But, but these are all signs of mismanagement, uh, focusing on very specific, some would say I would concur in some instances, radical ideas, and then trying to fund a few years of spending with 10 years of taxes. Right. Um, so you're going to be stuck with much higher taxes in the future just to pay for these things. And the real kicker, is this is about the worst time you could be doing this. And we've already spent uh, roughly $6 trillion in so-called COVID relief, much of it fairly decently targeted, much some of it not. Last year, uh, with several bills, one of the largest was over $3 trillion. Then in December, we had a, uh, we had a big bill passed. Uh, and then Mr. Biden had a so-called COVID relief measure passed in March for $1.9 trillion, only a small fraction of that was targeted to what might legitimately be called COVID relief. Then he has the over $1 trillion infrastructure bill, which he just signed. And now he's looking for even more. Well, this has uh, contributed to the surge in inflation. It's certainly not the only reason that has happened. There's the effect of uh, measuring off a low base from the first year of COVID. Uh, there's supply chain disruption, some fraction of which will be resolved in the next six to 12 months. Uh, but it looks like we're not going to be having uh, get back down to the one and a half to two percent range. The Fed and most people think is sensible uh, for quite some time. Inflation expectations now are four percent among uh, consumers and over three percent in the bond market. So uh, for the next several years. So this is a, this is one problem. The other problem is Social Security and Medicare face very large unfunded uh, spending projections. 
So okay. the problem is Social Security and Medicare, our two largest programs, are growing much more rapidly than the revenue that uh, is likely to occur. They're forcing large general revenue transfers into those programs to keep them whole. They're projected to run out of money in uh, a few years for Medicare and uh, Social Security early in the next decade. And what does that mean? That means we're going to have to either raise taxes or cut benefits then. So we have a big fiscal issue facing us. And what is Mr. Biden doing? He's adding on top of a lot of stuff that was done in an emergency for the recession and COVID. He's adding a lot of new spending programs, partly or not, some partly funded uh, because it's four years or six years. We're paying for it with 10 years of taxes. That'll, that'll all be used up. And when the program comes up for renewal, uh, they'll have to raise ta- another round of taxes or borrow still more. So Social Security has an unfunded liabilities and it's the net present value of the projected difference between Social Security benefits due to, projected to be paid and projected revenue roughly as large as the national debt. And Medicare has an unfunded liability more than twice the national debt. So to add a bunch of new programs uh, that are going to be costly, be very hard to remove, that are likely to grow much beyond current projections, and either fund them with uh, fund a few years of them with many years of taxes, or uh, to just to cover the cost, or to fund them uh, with debt, is highly irresponsible on both those scores on inflation and on risking destabilizing Social Security, making it harder to deal with the unfunded liabilities confronting Social Security and Medicare. Michael, if I read the numbers correctly, the federal government pays something like $562 billion a year in interest payments on debt. At the same time, it's taking in about $4 trillion in revenue. That means about one in seven dollars coming in are going just to pay interest on debt, not whittling down the debt, but just paying the interest. Uh, that is correct. And we've been uh, fortunate uh, in the sense that interest rates have been low on that government debt, but they won't stay there forever. And if they go back to anything, even partway back to what might be expected in normal times, uh, when the government rolls over the debt, when a cheap debt it borrowed uh, last year uh, expires in two or five or nine years from now, um, they're going to wind up having to refinance just the rolling over debt, not the new debt for funding new spending. Mm-hmm. And just to, so that's basically rolling over the debt that's already been spent. Um, and that means interest rates will rise. And the projection from CBO, the agency of the government you just mentioned, is that interest payments will become the largest part of our, uh, of our, uh, uh, of our spending, uh, exceeding Medicare and Social Security eventually over the next decade or so. And if you go out to their long-run projections, it turns out uh, to be immensely, immensely costly because we'll be adding in if we fund Social Security and Medicare, as it looks likely now, at least heavily by borrowing, we'll wind up adding even more debt, and higher interest, and it'll wind up compounding and basically crowding out the other necessary functions of government uh, from defense to education, some education spending, to uh, transportation, et cetera. So there's a lot, there's a big, big fiscal picture out here and we've wasted several decades through administrations, Republican and Democrat, uh, Congresses controlled by either party or, or, or uh, uh, where there's divided control. We've wasted several decades in getting a down payment or getting ahead of what we know were the looming deficits in Social Security and Medicare. And now we're taking very irresponsible action uh, that will make it harder to deal with those problems. 
Let's uh, spend a few minutes on inflation since you mentioned transitory inflation. I'm just I'm curious, for example, Michael, you once uh, worked in a White House and you would have at various times had to speak to reporters, stand at the podium in the briefing room and talk about things. Could you stand up there with a straight face and use the phrase transitory inflation? Uh, no, I think that's really um, only political spin. There, there's no doubt that some portion of the 6% plus inflation that was reported last month uh, will likely abate because it's based off of a low year and some of the supply chain issues for some particular commodities uh, will occur. But it's unlikely that it will fall all the way back down to one and a half or 2%. Uh, and even if it gets to the three or 4% range uh, in coming months, uh, that's still way too high. Uh, it'd be useful to remember for those of your uh, listeners who aren't familiar with the history of inflation and policy reactions to inflation, that a conservative Republican president, Nixon, Richard Nixon, imposed wage and price controls on the economy in order to, uh, when inflation got up to 4%. Now, it turns out they caused many uh, misallocations of resources, turned out by analyses of, uh, of economists uh, who have advised politicians in both parties, that this was an ill-fated experiment wind up causing more harm than, uh, than it should have and maybe more harm than good. So uh, it turns out that inflation can be a very eroding thing to the public's confidence, uh, to the ability of policymakers to make wise decisions uh, and the like. The one good difference from previous history is, and I, I'm proud I played a hand in this as helping design, it, design the tax policy and, President Reagan's campaign is on his task, task force on, on taxation. He indexed the tax brackets for inflation. So while some other, some other aspects of the tax code are not adjusted automatically for inflation, uh, we wind up having people are not really being driven into higher tax brackets purely by inflationary income increases. Uh, but that's only part of the story. There's other parts of the tax code that need to be fixed in that regard, number one. And number two, by far the best thing to do is to gradually get inflation down to a reasonable level and keep it there. That's essential for strong economic growth to be sustained uh, without causing horrible inflation that is then have to be met with a very aggressive attack as Paul Volcker did in the early, 19, uh, early 1980s to get double digit inflation under control uh, that had been sparked in part by uh, Lyndon Johnson and, uh, and Jimmy Carter's uh, policies. Uh, but he got it under control, but in getting it under control, he, he, got, he caused the worst recession at, up to that point since World War II in 1981 and 82. Uh, we don't want to repeat that. That would be horrible, and especially horrible for the most vulnerable in our society who pay these higher prices at the gas pump, pay these higher prices in the grocery store, and don't have a lot of financial uh, security and wiggle room. Uh, so the best thing to do is to keep inflation in a very, very modest relatively low range. Right. I think our listeners should know, you know this firsthand. I looked it up, Michael, in 1991, the inflation rate was hovering around 4%, I believe. And that's right. you can recall that caused all sorts of headaches for, for President Bush trying to run for a second term. Absolutely. Now, inflation had gotten down from 13% to about 5 or 6%, then down to around 4% in the early 90s. Uh, Chairman Greenspan was uh, very aggressive at trying to get it down to 2%, something in which he succeeded you know, we had minor differences about the timing of that um, in view of uh, what I viewed as a looming recession from the high oil prices from Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait 
uh, and from very restrictive credit uh, as we were cleaning up the savings and loans and um, third world debt of the money center banks. Okay. Uh, since you mentioned Paul Volcker, let's shift to the Federal Reserve. The president expected in the next few days to announce uh, the, the next chairman or extend Jerome Powell's term at the Fed, Michael. To those who follow the economy, Michael, not PhDs like you, but just people who follow it in terms of investment, in terms of pocketbook, let's talk about the significance of this choice. Um, as I see it, it's as simple as this. The president can continue with the status quo. Mr. Powell is a lawyer with a financial background, uh, but the emerging candidate is a woman. She has a PhD uh, in economics, as do you, and she she would be a shift from him. So what, what is really the significance of this choice? Well, the first thing people should know is the Federal Reserve exercises a lot of important uh, levers uh, on the economy. The most important is when it sets its target short-run interest rate called the federal funds rate, the rate uh, uh, that's what you read about in the headlines, which is currently hovering uh, at under 0.1%, uh, so as cl close to zero as you can get. Uh, they also have been doing lots of buying of assets. They've been buying $120 billion a month, $80 billion of treasury securities, and $40 billion of mortgage-backed securities. They're starting to taper that down $5 billion a month. Um, so it'll take quite some time at that pace. My own view is they probably should have gone a bit faster in a uh, sensible risk analysis uh, point of view. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, need for buying 40 billion or 35 billion every month of mortgage-backed securities when the housing market uh, and the, the real estate in general has been booming. Uh, so it's just adding a little gasoline to the fire. Uh, so I think that uh, many academic economists, uh, both parties, Larry Summers uh, being a prime example of our Democrats, uh, have been urging the Fed to start tapering sooner, a little more rapidly, uh, and to get ready to raise interest rates as necessary, which is likely to be necessary unless we get a much, a much softer landing on inflation than most of us expect. Uh, but now why is the Fed chairman particularly important besides the institution? Unlike many institutions, say the Supreme Court, where you know, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court has some exercise, his ability to move things around a little bit, but can be outvoted and sometimes is. And, uh, Justice Roberts is, uh, in the minority a fair number of times. He, you know, he tries to use his leverage to get narrower decisions, but he's one uh, among nine voices and votes, although he has some extra influence. The Fed chair basically has enormous influence. Why formally votes on things like the federal funds rate are done by the open market committee of the Fed, which is the, the chair, the vice chairs, and other members of the board of governors, and five of the 12 on a rotating basis. Uh, uh, five of the 12 presidents of the district banks. New York's always on, Chicago every other year, all the others rotate one every three years. And they have what amounts to an academic seminar of the state of the economy, where it's going, what can we do, what do we expect to happen? Uh, but the chair exercises immense power, uh, dis far, far disproportionate. Uh, it's extremely rare for the Fed chair not to get uh, his way. Uh, maybe eventually if Lael becomes chair, it'll be her way. Uh, I know both Jay Powell and, uh, and Lael Brainerd. Uh, Jay and I worked together in the Bush administration. He's a, a, a friend. Uh, we speak on occasion. I've had him out to Stanford to give talks. Uh, and Lael Brainerd was, when she was quite young, was a staffer on the Council of Economic Advisors when I was uh, CEA chair. Uh, their views in the short run on monetary policy seem to me to be pretty consistent. 
what I think that the two big differences are that uh, Powell has been uh, more of a uh, lighter hand of regulation on the financial sector, not going back to the cowboy days of before uh, the financial crisis, but sees, uh, sees balancing of risks and costs of innovation against sluggish growth. And uh, Lael has been much more of a, uh, uh, of a hard liner on regulation, not extreme, but hard, toward the hard line point of view. Um, the, uh, on longer run monetary policy, there's a very big debate and lots of uh, politicians, interest groups, uh, some based because she's a woman, et cetera. We've already had Janet Yellen, she's already been a woman. Right. Um, but lots of reasons people are pushing rail and including some very prominent uh, former uh, Obama and Clinton administration economists, Joe Stiglitz, for example, uh, are pushing rail because they think the Fed has to take a broader view than inflation and unemployment, which is its dual mandate, so-called. That it should be taking account of uh, financial risk, which of course they do already, uh, maybe not to these people's liking, and especially they think the Fed should be focused more on climate change. Whatever one's view are on climate change, the Federal Reserve is not the place to muck up its crucial role in dealing with sustaining maximum employment and low inflation, with pursuing some other goals or distracting it to other goals, which would cause a lot of damage. Uh, there are lots of ways to have policies affecting climate change, and we should debate those on their pros and cons, not try to uh, shoehorn in some uh, idealized uh, progressive policy goal uh, and layered on top of what the Fed's already having a difficult time doing in any way, uh, which is balancing risk and reward and inflation and unemployment. But I oh, think they mean? think that Lael Brainerd would be uh, advocate looser monetary policy over the longer run, and Jay Powell would probably gradually uh, uh, continue or, or steepen the taper and probably would be, if things go as projected, we're more likely to gradually and slowly raise interest rates um, uh, sometime before they think they'll brain or do. So that's, that's the, the going, what's going on there. Uh, I think they're both honorable people. Uh, I'm sure I would agree with some things either. I certainly have agreed with some of the things Jay's done. I've disagreed with others. Same, I'm sure the same would be true of Lael, but it's on a more heavy handed regulation and taking a risk about inflation by keeping interest rates low longer uh, in order to produce some other social goals, like trying to get the labor market so red hot that it helps people at the bottom, uh, risking potentially uh, uh, difficult days ahead for the Fed in dealing with inflation. So those are the trade-offs and that's what's being debated. And I'm sure Mr. Biden is being briefed on that. We have just a couple minutes left, Michael. Um so we're watching Build Back Better go through these gyrations. Uh, supposedly, uh, commercial Democrats want to get this resolved by Christmas. Um, there, meanwhile, there's the spectacle of the National Defense Authorization Act, which you know is a Pentagon spending bill that's always a hot mess because it has hundreds of amendments attached to it. Uh, meanwhile, Michael, is the question of the government reaching its debt ceiling. Uh, you mentioned Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary. She had been saying it was December the 3rd. Now maybe it's closer to December 15th, thanks to newfound money in the trillion dollar infrastructure bill. The question, Michael, is this any way to run a railroad? Well, uh, there's this balance in a democracy between um, having some sensible fiscal controls. Uh, you remember, uh, I've forgotten what, I think it was Will Rogers, not Mark Twain, that said no one's safe while the legislature's in session. Um, 
there have been lots of other quips by comedians about how they spend other people's money uh, uh, as if it's free. And maybe Mr. Biden still thinks it's free. Uh, and that's really a really bad idea. Uh, so I think that there's a problem brewing here. And um, historically, uh, conservatives have viewed votes on the debt ceiling as a pressure point to try to get spending under control. So if we just made it automatic, the fear is that it'd be easier to expand spending. And then when you come, when you get to a, a debt where, where the debt is, you just keep doing it forever. And they view it as a break. Uh, it turns out, of course, we're not going to uh, let the debt ceiling let the debt ceiling be breached. We're not going to default on our payments. We're not going to risk uh, the good faith and credit of the dollar and America standing in the world, we get immense benefits from that with the global reserve currency. We actually can borrow at lower interest rates than we otherwise would because of that. So it's important that we basically uh, wind up getting this done as soon as possible. Uh, but it seems that the setup is always we're going to get to a debt limit, try to use it to force some other changes. As you know, you know well, Bill, uh, Congress works to deadlines. It's hard to get them to do something before they absolutely have to. And then everybody scrambles to that point, trying to get their pet projects or their pet policy views or their pet programs stuck into a must pass bill. Uh, so I think there's little chance of changing that around, but in theory, would it be better not to have these, uh, these cliffs and these fights and these debates and stuff? It would be much better to return to regular order, have these things vetted in committees as straightforward votes on uh, pieces of legislation, not package, not packages of behemoth proposals that have lots of nonsense in it. That, as Nancy Pelosi says, we have to pass to find out what's in it. Uh, I think that's really poor governance. Uh, and if we could, if we could do that, uh, there'd be less need to fight over the debt ceiling. But in lieu of that, it's I think, uh, uh, while perhaps not very effective, as conservatives feel they have an opportunity to push to try to keep spending under control. Dr. Michael Boskin, we're going to leave it there. I hope you and the Boskin family have a great Thanksgiving and don't let the president's visions of what is free and thoughts of inflation ruin your holidays, okay? Uh, we'll make sure it doesn't, Bill. Good to see you again. Thank you, Michael. You take care. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the free world. A great review and subscribe to our show. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Tell your friends to have... Instagram and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled at Hoover I-N-S-T. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the latest insights from Michael Boskin and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.